Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Victor Miller. I wrote Friday the 13th and you're listening to Genretainment. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Genretainment at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie. Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. Now it's episode 109, mm-hmm. and we are chatting with dark fantasy, horror, and sci-fi writer, Alan Baxter. Baxter is an international master of kung fu who writes novels, novellas, and short stories full of magic, monsters, and yes, martial arts. Baxter tells us about his infamous first story he wrote when he was seven years old. <laughs> his nonfiction book, Write the Fight Right, <laughs> which is a tongue twister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, five times fast. His uh, Alex Kane series, his fantasy novels, his many horror, fantasy, sci-fi short stories, and we talk about his martial arts background. Now, we also discuss his approach to writing, tips on writing fights, tips on writing in general, how Alan is Marx's clone. That's the and rumor. Mark, much, much more. <laughs> Oh no, there's except two he, of them. Somebody has a cooler accent. Yeah, well, they may think you have a cooler accent. Now, before we get started with the interviews, we should point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand. It was a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy, and you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now, let's get started with our interview with writer Alan Baxter. Alan Baxter is a British-Australian award-winning author of dark fantasy, horror, and sci-fi, and also a teacher of kung fu. So welcome to the show, Alan. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So let's start from the beginning, before we talk too much more about your books. Back when he... I was born in... Oh, this isn't, this isn't the goose. I was born in a land before time. <laughs> Otherwise known as Australia. So, well, actually, I was born in Britain, but yeah. Uh, well, yeah. make a liar out of me every time. <laughs> so how long have you been writing, and what led you to become an author? Uh, well, it's a big question. I, the, the honest truth is I don't know because I think I've always done it. I've always spun yarns. I've always enjoyed telling stories. When I was a kid, I did loads of role-playing, Dungeons and & Dragons and stuff like that, and I always preferred being the dungeon master than a player because I got to make up the games and the stories, and it was a way of telling people stories. My earliest memory of being a writer is being about seven years old in primary school and we were sent home during the half-term holidays and told to, before we came back, to write a story about what we did on holiday. So all the kids came back with like a paragraph about going to visit their nan or something like that. And I came back with seven pages about going back in time and fighting dinosaurs. So, (laughs) which I didn't actually do, but as far as I was concerned, you know, I conceptually did that during my week off. So yeah, I think it's just always been in my blood, it's always been a desire just to make shit up and tell stories. <laughs> <laughs> and how did your teacher respond to the going back in time and fighting dinosaurs? Oh, well, actually, she rang my, my she rang my parents and asked why they'd helped me with this and did I did why did they not like instruct me to do the right thing? And my parents were like, "Look, sorry, I've got no idea what you're talking about. We had no idea he'd even written this thing, so it, it's <laughs> did it all off his own back." So then she had me read it to the class, and um, it was quite an experience to read that story and see the class I was so nervous I remember standing there and the page was sort of shaking in my hands 
but then realized that everybody was just paying attention and just and people coming up to me afterwards and go, oh, great story. And we were all seven, of course. It was rubbish, but, you know, <laughs> it's really quite an interesting experience. So That's really good that you had a teacher that didn't just go, that wasn't the assignment. You get a zero, you know, <laughs> you right. failed. Yeah, she was a little blown away. She was convinced at first that my parents had written it for me or written it with me, and she just couldn't understand why. And as soon as they said to her, "Sorry, I have no idea what you're talking about," then she just everything changed. It was it was yeah, quite. But you're right. That's that's a good teacher. Yeah, that is a good teacher. You still have that story. I do somewhere. I've got a box of stuff. Uh, after my father died, and I went back to the UK, and I had to tidy up the house and all that sort of stuff. I was sort of seeing what I could save and organizing stuff. And I came across these four or five boxes up in the attic, um, packed full of old school exercise books and all that sort of stuff. And so I've got all that. And at some, this was some years ago, it's my dad died eight years ago, but I, I, so I've got the stuff and sometime I must go through it. And I'm fairly convinced that that story and a few other bits and pieces will be in those boxes somewhere, but it's a bit of a task to kind of dive in. Yeah. (laughs) I think you should scan them and put them up on, on your website. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. Definitely dig it up. That was definitely that one. If uh, if I find that one, I will definitely. Because, yeah, it, like I said, it's my kind of earliest story memory. So it's, it's kind of a bit of a turning point, I guess. I didn't realize at the time. but Very cool. So what from there led you to eventually publishing your books and short stories? Like I said, I did a lot of role-playing games. <clears throat> and I did a lot of um, writing of games. And a lot of the time I would read stories that I just you know I'd read for big fat fantasy novels that I just loved so much so I would just like shamelessly plagiarize them and twist them into a game and then kind of retell the story myself um but when I was in I guess my mid-teens I started actually thinking that I should write stories down more um you know more seriously and that's when I that's where my sort of bottom drawer novels come from I've got some stuff sitting there that will never see the light of day and throughout all this time, I was a martial artist and I was training and that was my other real focus. And I would do a lot of competition and all that sort of stuff. And then I got to the point in my early 20s when I realized that really I was just working crappy nine to five admin jobs purely to pay me money for training fees so that I could go and train and fight. And everything was in and that was great. That was good. But it was, everything felt like a bit of a rut. So. I decided to just kind of chuck everything and I just went off and lived out of a backpack for a couple of years um, and traveled the world. And as it turns out, that's when I met my wife, who's Australian. I ended up coming to Australia and all that stuff. But during that time, during that sort of two years of just walking the earth, I uh, started thinking about what I seriously really wanted out of life. And that's when I decided that I was actually going to make a, a proper go of writing and write seriously with a view to publication and actually try to be a success at it and so in my sort of mid to late 20s is when I actually really started seriously writing and then it was just the slog of doing it and submitting it and learning more and honing the craft and all that until I started scoring a few sort of early publications I actually self-published my first novel after it went to acquisitions twice at big publishers and didn't quite make that last hurdle Um, and that was back in the sort of early days of the self-publishing revolution which just struck me as fascinating so I just decided to give that a go and that book and its sequel have now since been picked up by Griffinwood Press and other stuff and the new the new series the Alex Kane series is published by HarperCollins so everything just kind of grew through the process of being bloody-minded and determined. (laughs) That's the only way to get there. It's the simple it is the only it is I really hate 
writing rules and there's all sorts of writing advice but the uh, the only real advice that actually works for everyone is that you have to write as much as you can and you just have to not give up those are the only things that are guaranteed for everyone you know there's no right path otherwise since you had a background playing role-playing games did you ever write anything for a role-playing game or ever want to I would really enjoy the opportunity to write some law books for various games and some source books and stuff because I was always fascinated by those things. You know, I used to love reading the Monster Manual and all that sort of stuff. Um, and a, a friend of mine, uh, Matthew Farrow, writes a lot of source books um, for various role-playing games, and it's really interesting to see his process. He writes novels. He writes Warhammer 40k novels for Black. Uh, what what's it called? Black Library. Um, and so it's interesting to watch him do that stuff. And I've done some work in video games. I've written some dialogue and side quests and all that sort of stuff in video games, which is a little bit similar. And I would like the opportunity to to write some source books for for role-playing games, but it's a case of opportunity and time, as is always the way with all these things that we do. And you did write the nonfiction book, Write the Fight Right. <laughs> Say that five times fast. Write the fight right. I love watching people struggle with that. It never occurred to me when I decided on that title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, you didn't say that out loud when you came up with the title, did you? <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> um, now that book gives tips on how writers or authors can write fight scenes. Yeah, which is a great partnership between you know your being an author and and also martial artist. Can you tell us a little bit more about about that book and what sparked the idea to write it? Yeah, sure. Well, it, it's funny because. Obviously, the two the two major focuses in my life have always been martial arts and writing, certainly in my adult life. And it never really occurred to me how much I was combining those things until that we have a convention. We have a number of state conventions around um, Australia. They're like Conflux, Continuum, SwanCon, all these different things, science fiction conventions each year. And one of my favorites is Conflux down in Canberra, which is the one that just happened last weekend. Uh, and many years ago, one of the people who's involved with organizing that said to me hey you write really good fight scenes why don't you do a workshop for writers so you know to help other people write fight scenes i was like oh right okay it never occurred to me that i wrote good fight scenes but it kind of makes sense you know i've <laughs> been fighting my whole life so i guess i would know what i'm talking about um and so i put together this workshop to run on the friday before the convention proper got started uh and it was really popular and subsequently i then ended up doing that workshop a number of different times i did it with a really big group of people at Worldcon in 2010, which was just fantastic fun. And the one thing people kept saying to me after the workshop was always, oh, because I would always supply a sh sort of a sheet of notes, like a checkpoint, like a cheat sheet that went along with the workshop. And people would always say, oh, is there, is there more I can read about this? Have you got something on your website or blah, 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 more I can do. And so eventually I decided that I should actually respond to that. And that's where Right the Fight Right came from. Um, and it's it's a very short book. It's, it's, it's really it's like a very long essay more than it's actually a book, um, but it's fairly condensed and it basically covers all the various aspects of making a fight scene as realistic as possible in terms of what fighting is actually like in order to sort of lend authenticity to writers when they write their fights. And now when I do the workshop and people say, is there anything else I can read? I'm just like, yep, go to their ebook 299. And that's like a, a big kind of a short book or a long essay. <laughs> all about what we've been talking about and so it so it grew simply from the process of the workshop but it, it's been quite it's been quite popular and I've, at some point I do want to write another non-fiction book that that does similar things but also draws a lot more of the parallels between a life in the martial arts and a life of writing and how they sort of compare and all that sort of stuff so at some point I want to expand into something a lot bigger but for the time being right the fight right seems to be sort of serving serving the purpose it was intended for which is good 
Yeah, it's a good book. And to talk more about your martial art experience, can you tell us a little bit about that background and uh, what you teach? <laughs> I guess I got to tell you, sorry, but I feel like I'm talking to another Marx here because <laughs> <laughs> Marx is into the, he introduced me into role playing games and then way back in the day when we met. And then uh, he's a martial artist, he writes. Yeah. And I'm just kind of like, you look different. Different, but we're basically the same. like your clones. <laughs> I know, like, and I've met a few along twins. the way. I, yeah, this, this is so bizarre for me. Just, I'm just standing, sitting here. My mind is blown. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of us out there. There's a lot. I've met a lot of people over the years who are basically writers, authors, complete gaming nerds, and martial artists. And it's one of those things. It all kind of goes together in a way. Like in some ways, so I can't remember who it was that said it, but one of the thing that um, sort of really highlights it is somebody said that uh, traditional martial artists are just like athletic geeks, except the ones who aren't very athletic. Because <laughs> Because it boils down to the same thing when you've got a big traditional system. Because I teach a, a style of kung fu called choi lei fat, which is a which is a southern system of a southern long fist system of kung fu, and it's got Shaolin roots. So we've got a lot of forms, a lot of dummy forms, a lot of weapon forms. There's a lot of stuff to remember. There's an awful lot of theory. There's a qigong and tai chi component to it. There's a traditional lion dance, um, like, you know, like to see the lions at New Year and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah, so it's a huge system and there's an awful lot to learn. So you get, a, in some ways, it appeals to those sort of nerdily minded people. You can do something that's a lot simpler and stripped back a lot to just sort of simply to fighting. Um, you know, like something like Muay Thai has a, a rich history and a, it's a, you know, it's got a, a big cultural background. But you can go to a Muay Thai club where you're just basically learning ring fighting, mm -hmm. whereas you come to a traditional system like mine. And there's a lot of history and a lot of theory and a lot of forms to remember and all that stuff. So you often get that thing where you have that crossover with people who are kind of nerdy and kind of into their role playing games and stuff like that. And then they, they get drawn to these traditional martial arts as well. Uh, uh, I started when uh, I was yeah. tiny. So, wow. you know, it took me a long time to find what I was actually, I actually started with judo. Um, okay. which I still have a lot of respect for. It's, it's, it's a great art and it's a great supplement to anything else you can do. But then my judo teacher moved away and he said, okay, because I was, it was in like in, in the local, local community center. And he said, right, I'm, I'm moving. So unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to teach you anymore. But if you want to come to the same place at the same time, every week, a new teacher's taken over. And we went, oh, okay, cool. Turned out the new teacher was karate. <laughs> um, so it's like, well, I was doing judo. I don't want to do it. And so I did karate for this particular style of karate for about a year, and it just didn't fit me. I just didn't like it very much. It didn't work for me. So then I started looking for other things, uh, tried a couple of different other forms of karate, and then discovered kung fu, tried different forms of kung fu. And I was like, okay, right now, actually, this is exactly what I'm looking for. And then when I discovered the style of Choi Fat Kung Fu when I was still growing up in Britain, and it was taught as part of a bigger hybrid system, at the time and that was the bit that i liked the most and then when i came to australia i discovered that the the literal grandfather of the style the great great grandson of the founder of chole fat lives and teaches in sydney and i've been a disciple of his now for 20 years oh wow oh, very cool. that is cool well and yeah. i think even when you get into the more modern styles like i explained to people who don't know about you know mixed martial arts and they think i had someone say oh i don't like watching people just get pounded on. And I'm like, no, there's so much strategy. And I mean, yeah. if, if, if you're just someone who goes out there and just likes to throw punches, you're going to lose and quickly. I said, it's, it, it's a thinking sport. 
yeah, as that's much it. as I'm it just... is a physical sport. Yeah, and there's even an awful when lot you of... watch, yeah, when you watch the UFC, I mean, the smart people are the ones that win. <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot of strategy in preparing for fights. There's a lot of strategy in being as the best that you can and in studying the other fighters. And there's an enormous amount of respect in the ring and stuff like that as well. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of people just see people punching each other and they see they see blood and they go, oh, it's just it's brutality and it's and this and that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of what's actually going yeah. on. They don't really understand. Once you start explaining to them what the sport really is, you know, it's like it's a thinking person's sport. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, it's good we've got um, some really sort of strong ambassadors for the sport now. People like Ronda Rousey and people like that are really opening people's eyes. The fact that she's a woman is making people go, oh, wait a minute. And they'll stop a little bit longer and listen a little bit more, yeah. um, which is which is good for all combat sports because it's kind of opening people's eyes to what's actually going on. Yeah. Marks and I saw the first... How many years ago was it that we first saw women fighters at a local mixed martial arts? And at first there was some uh, some guy, kind of, you know, guy half drunk in front of us going, oh, a bunch of women's just going to be a cat fight. Well, the women got out there and they were the best fighters of the night. Yeah. And by the yeah, time that right. fight was over, the, the same people who were making fun of were on their feet and clapping. And then the next... Uh, match came out and it was two guys and they weren't that good and the same people that had before been making fun of it started going get the women back out here they know how to fight you know guys <laughs> should fight like girls yeah <laughs> and so uh, that that took care of it everybody that was there that night had a new respect for the for the women fighters because we didn't we yeah. just went there's women and uh, you know this was several years ago but yeah the same people that once they saw them fight and were like hey get them back out here they're good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's often the way. If you go to if you go to a competition where there's a lot of different fights on throughout the course of the night, it's often the women fights that are just the most exciting. Which, but in some ways, it's the same for the same reasons that a lot of the time the lightweight or the featherweight, yeah, up to maybe the middleweight guys' fights are more exciting because when you get the big heavyweights, they just you know they tend to be a bit slower and more clubbing, and it's not whereas the it's fast. Bo- it's of, way more boring. It's just trading a few blows until the big yeah. So women tend to fight fall. more like, yeah. like guys, and so that's more exciting. And uh, and also, I guess a lot of women still feel like they've still got a lot to prove, and so they're yeah. determined to put on a good show when they fight as well. So it's yeah, it's exciting stuff. Yeah, they have to do twice as good, you know. But, mm. but yeah, if we feel the same way. Once they start, you start getting into the heavier weight classes. They're not as much fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you get some just real drag out brawls, and you know the guys can just take so much punishment and deliver so much that there's, in some ways, it's kind of just fascinating to watch that happen but the real <laughs> strategy and the real exciting fights are usually in the lighter weight divisions yeah those are a lot mm-hmm. more fun yeah for sure i've seen very few boring female fights yeah yeah mm. plenty of guy fights are boring yeah <laughs> sometimes i'm like <laughs> yeah, pick up on the next one especially when they're both cautious you know they don't want to hurt each other they're like afraid they're gonna get knocked just, out just doing this kind of like dancing without touching things yeah. yeah and i like to dance and i can tell you that's not good dancing <laughs> one of your book series uh, you write a dark urban fantasy thriller series called alex kane or the alex kane uh-huh. series it's just alex kane series yeah and uh which is perfect mix merges fantasy with martial arts you know so can, can you tell our audience a little bit more about that series sure it it's um well, I kind of, it kind of grew out of the same process that led to write the fight right and stuff like that because a lot of the stuff that I wrote had martial arts in it. It had people fighting in it and people who could fight and so on. In my previous series, the main character, Isaiah, has got a lot of training and he's an excellent martial artist, but that's not really the focus of what's going on. Um, and then I decided that given what I do, 
I should really probably write a book where the scent, where the main character is first and foremost a martial artist rather than someone who happens to also know martial arts. And I'd had this idea, this ongoing idea for this kind of modern kind of urban dark fantasy framework that I wanted to write. And I was trying to, I was letting it percolate, you know, trying to figure out how to best tell the story. And then when I decided I should write a protagonist who was first and foremost a martial artist and then the character of Alex Kane sort of dropped into my head and I was like ah oh, right okay so this is the character who's a great for this vehicle plot and so on and that kind of came together so the Alex Kane himself is an underground MMA fighter um in Sydney in Australia in the in the instant the first part of the book he's very very good at what he does he had a troubled childhood he discovered martial arts he trained hard and became an excellent fighter and he grew up and he's not interested in the ufc and tv and the big stuff he's more interested in the gritty underground fight scene that's technically not legal and not really any focus on it and he's just top of his game he's making a great living at it he's comfortable he's a champion he travels around the world and fights when he feels like it he sort of mostly fights in australia and sydney and it's all good and then one day after a fight in sydney this old english fella comes along and says to him you know you're you're a great fighter but there's actually more to you than you realize and alex always uses this sort of ability that he he just sees it as um, the product of extensive training and that he has almost this second sight to kind of anticipate what people are going to do and he thinks no more of it than that but this old fellow says to him actually you know that's a lot more than you think it is and alex isn't interested he doesn't want anything up. He goes, um, I've got the life I want. You can just leave me alone. I'm not interested in your weird magic secrets. Um, but then, <laughs> He's got a good thing going right now. He doesn't want to mess with it. Yeah, no, that's it. He's got exactly where he wants to be. Um, so he doesn't want any complications. The, the Alex Kane as a character is very much the sort of person who just wants to keep control of his life. When he feels control slipping away, that's a bad thing. So anything that comes along and threatens his comfortable, controlled life, he's not into it. But there's uh, some nefarious hoods around the area who are trying to fix the fight game and stuff like that. Alex won't play along. They start threatening and getting a bit heavier. Things sort of conspire and come to a head, and Alex kind of needs to leave the country for a little while. So he ends up going with this English guy after all, and going, "Look, all right, I need to get away. You can take me to London, fine." <laughs> um, and that, unfortunately, of course, is the just the start of his troubles. And he gets drawn into this mess where he gets caught in a curse, and there are monsters and magic. And the more he tries to fight his way out of what he's got wrapped into, the further he gets dragged into it, and the more threatened he gets. And eventually. This woman comes along and helps out and she's a lot more than she seems, a lot more than human after all. And that sort of helps, but also complicates things and so on. And that's the beginning of the first book that's now a trilogy, Bound Obsidian and Abduction being the trilogy. And hopefully if they're successful, I'll get to write more Alex Kane books. But at least in this instance, each one is a standalone novel. But over the course of the three, there's the, the major story arc sort of starts and resolves over the course of the three to make it a sort of cohesive trilogy. Very cool. cool. You also wrote the dark urban fantasy books Realm Shift and Mage Sign. Say that yeah. five times fast. <laughs> Mage Sign. He was stumbling over that one. Um, yes, yeah, um, those. That's a duology. People do keep the main character there is uh, a guy called Isaiah, and people keep saying to me, "Is there going to be another Isaiah book?" And like the story is told in two books. They're both they're stand they're both standalone novels again, but they are sort of directly connected. There might be another one, but if I really get a good idea for it, but I'm not going to write another one sort of just for the sake of it. But those ones are a little a little bit different. They sort of deal with a lot of um, religious mythology and they're exploring the nature of belief and people's 
effects on the world by what they believe and what they do and stuff like that. But they do still follow in that similar kind of pattern. There's lots of magic and monsters, there's fighting and demons and all sorts of stuff going on. And they're, all my books are kind of written a bit like thrillers. They're sort of fast paced and they're running around the world and bad guys chasing and good guys trying to get there before the bad guys get there and all that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they, uh, the, the, the Realm Shift and Mage Sign together are known as the Balance series. And there may be more, there may be not. We'll see where that goes. But. Because you want to get out of balance. You want three, you want to get a four. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If I do write a third, I'm, maybe I'll need to write a fourth. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Three's a good balance. So. <laughs> it deals with like theological beliefs and everything. Three is an ancient it's true, it's number. True. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. yeah Seven, that's right. Seven's an ancient number for spirituality. Yeah, that's it. It's a so trilogy. you either have to do three or seven. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. If you do four, then you gotta go all the way to seven. All the way to seven. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll bear that in mind. I'm, I may write three. We'll see what. <laughs> and you just have like transdimensional crossover. Alex Kane suddenly pops up in there. It'd be great. Well, actually, <laughs> if um, if people who have read the books, um, in the first Alex Kane book, in Bound, there is a brief cameo by Isaiah in that book, and one of the secret societies that first appears in mage sign has a fairly significant role in in the alex kane series so while they're not actually connected any more than that they could even be they could even be two stories in alternate versions of the same universe they're not actually connected in any way but i'm a bit of a sucker for sort of easter eggs and stuff like that I so smell crossover yeah, so there is a little bit of that kind of stuff going on in there so you can do uh, like a super story kind of like how they used to do the nancy drew hardy boys super mysteries I don't know, maybe right. they still do. I haven't read them in a long time. But like a, a kid. comics event, I could have a, yeah. <laughs> I was a nerd as a kid. I read a lot, so I remember those. Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be good. <laughs> well, I always like these, like, uh, genre crossover stuff with an author in his books, because, like, Simon R. Green does that a lot. I don't know if you read him, but he mixes a lot of his stuff together. And, yeah. And they're very there's fantasy books and then there's like sword and sorcery fantasy and then there's like space opera and everything somehow he blends them together occasionally so yeah i love that kind of stuff and i don't i never want to sort of commit too much to any of that stuff like so like with the crossover between the balance series and the alex kane series it literally is just kind of a cameo role that you can go oh that's and then they don't have to think any more about it than that and the fact that this particular secret society and one of the same characters from one book also has a significant role in the other book there's no other reference between them other than the fact that they exist so if you read one and not the other it would make no difference and that's that's how i like it they start to get a bit too complicated then you end up in some ways making a rod for your back because you you end up blurring these things together and you don't necessarily get to tell individual stories so well yeah and then uh, you start getting into the the people who are like man i want you but i can't read you know all 10 books at like the same time to figure out how they're all marvel dc comic book yeah 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 Yeah, exactly so i mean if you want to read the ballad series that's contained you want to read alex kane series that's contained and that's always going to be the case and i'm working on a couple of standalone novels now that are completely unrelated and there won't even be any uh any sort of easter eggs or anything like that so i I want to make a point of not getting too complicated but i can't help being a little bit nerdy sometimes (laughs) (laughs) we like that yeah now you've also written a a large number of short stories um 60 something published now i think we're up to yeah that's all jeez jeez (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i I need to lift my game there yeah (laughs) my Uh, son just got home by the way so if you hear these strange 
wailing and squealings and stuff. Don't be alarmed. That's my two-year-old. Yeah. That that's okay. Sometimes they're doing good tonight, but sometimes our cats make appearances and yeah, you know, right. They literally will start like talking into the microphone instead of us. So they you know, just, our guests just, are yeah. answering meow questions. You're just, you're just really secretly Alex Kane, and you're fighting a monster in the background right that's now. That's what the noise is. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I've just got my headset on to be yeah, hands-free, so I can fight. And, yeah. <laughs> You know, you have written quite a few short stories. You know, what what are a few of the more popular ones or some of your favorite ones? Um, oh, man, I can't choose among your babies. No, um, I was going to say, that's like asking your favorite child. Although, tough. to be honest, most parents have a favorite. They just don't of want to Of course they it. do. And I probably do have favorite stories. I think probably in terms of stuff I'm proud of, uh, the holy grail for me um, of short story publishing was to have a short story in uh, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Yeah. To me... That FNSF has always just been the uh, like the pinnacle of of publications for that stuff. And I got a story called Chart of the Vagrant Mariner um, published in FNSF at the start of this year. Actually, it came out in the Jan Feb issue this year. Um, so that was just an absolute trip for me. I was as excited about that as I was signing a three book deal for Harper Voyager because that was such a it's such a hard market to crack. And I've had ten years worth of rejections, mm-hmm. um, and I finally sold a story to them and that was just so exciting and I think that's a good story too so that's definitely one to look up I uh, had a weird western ghost story published uh, beneath ceaseless skies it's another one I'm really proud because I love weird western and western horror as a sort of subgenre mm-hmm. and I've never I've kind of got in mind ideas for a standalone novel at some point but in the meantime I kept telling myself I wanted to write a weird western short story at least and that uh, that was published in beneath ceaseless skies so and I won the Australian Shadows Award this year for a story that was published last year called Shadows of the Lonely Dead that came out in an anthology called Suspended in Dusk. And that's a absolutely tremendous anthology. And it's a, that particular story is very personal in many ways to my sort of life experience. It was a hard story to write for that reason. So the fact that it's just been reprinted in Year's Best Australian Fantasy and Horror and it won the Shadows Award for Best Short Story and stuff like that. So that was that's quite exciting. That's a story I'm... I'm very proud of. Yeah, there's a congratulations. bunch of, uh, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. There's a bunch of stories on my uh, on my website actually. If people go to the short story page on my website, anything that's published in online magazines or that's you know, that's free to read online and stuff like that, there's links there to a bunch of different stuff. So You know, we talk about influences sometimes. I was wondering if all your background role playing games, if any of that influenced any of your any of your writing, you know, like like Laura K. Hamilton with Anita Blake. I feel like when I read it, at least in the in the first few books, that some of her creatures were inspired a little bit by uh, logic of like D and D type stuff, mm-hmm. uh, like her some of her like were rats and stuff like that. I was like, yeah, yeah. I I wouldn't. I don't know anything. I wouldn't be able to draw specific examples, but there's absolutely no question that influence is is in there somewhere. Alex Kane has a fight with a couple of gargoyles early on. In the cool. start, awesome. <laughs> this guy, this guy sends these two gargoyles after him, and he starts fighting them, and realizes that they're actually living stone, and it's like you know, ridiculously hard fight that he has to, and he's like breaking himself trying to fight them because he's fighting stone. So that that kind of stuff is definitely at least the sort of seeds of that stuff comes from all those great role playing games. And I, I was a huge fan, still am a huge fan of comics and graphic novels, and as a teenager growing up. I loved um, a lot of the stories of people like Garth Ennis and Alan Moore and stuff. So I've definitely got a lot of influence from comic books like Sandman and Hellblazer and, and those sorts of things. So 
yeah, my uh, my influences are sort of wide and varied. Great. And what about your writing method? What's it like whenever you sit down to write a book? Do you plot out quite a bit of it uh, out before you write the first draft? Or, or do, do you, you fly by the seat of your pants? Yeah. <laughs> pants or a plotter. Um, I think that this comes up a lot, and I think it's true. I think everybody is actually a sort of a combination of, of both to some degree. It's just it's a little like a sliding scale where you've got pure planners at one end and pure pantsers at the other. And people usually sit somewhere along that scale rather than at one end or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so people have in, shorts. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I think for me, I'm a little more up the pants end than I am up the planning end. But I definitely see, and it varies as well with, with um, uh, length. If I'm writing a short story, I will quite often just have a scene or a simple idea. And I'll just go, fuck it, let's go. And I'll mm-hmm. sit down and I'll just start writing because I've got this idea in my head. So I'll just let it pour and see where it goes. So often my short stories are almost entirely unplanned most of the time. Some, every once in a while I'll have an idea and I'll like, oh, and then this, that, and the other, and I'll kind of have the whole shape of it in my head and then I'll have to write it down and fill in the blanks. But often I have no idea where I'm going with it. Books, actual novel length stuff, I do tend to plan more these days but never in great depth i'll have a lot of notes i'll have certain key beats in the story that i want to hit along the way and filling that stuff in can be a mystery when i wrote realm shift i started it with no idea how it was going to end and i was three quarters of the way through and i still didn't know how it was going to end and i just (laughs) i just kind of trusted it would tell itself and it did by the time i was halfway through realm shift i was like oh man oh there's there's a second book here there's a second story that will fit really well with what's going on here and that was Mage Sign. And I knew exactly how Mage Sign was going to end because I could see what the net result of some stuff in Realmshift was, but I had no idea how I was going to get there. So I started writing Mage Sign going, right, I've got to get to this end. I better find a story that leads me there. And they're kind of two extremes of how that goes. With a lot of the Alex Kane books, by the time I was writing Abduction, I had a lot more notes because there are two books before that that were leading up to a lot of the events in that book. And so it all varies an awful lot, but generally speaking, I have a lot of notes, a lot of kind of key points that I want to hit along the way, and then I just go, and that's the pantsing part of it. I just let it fly then and see what happens. And I've always got this policy that if the story starts going somewhere that's leading me away from the notes, I'll always change the notes, not the story. Mm, okay. That's what I was going to ask is, do you ever get any anxiety if you keep going and you're not sure where it's going? Usually not. Usually I kind of trust in the process. Um, and if it starts to kind of bind up, like, I don't know where it's going and I'm not quite sure what's happening here, then that usually means I've kind of taken a wrong turn, gone down a dead end, you know, and I'll go, right, okay, hang on a minute, There's, I've messed up here somewhere, something's not working. I'll usually backtrack a little bit and realize that, okay, this is, this, you know, at this point, one chapter or two chapters before the story actually needed to go a different way. Oh. Uh, and I'll usually revise that. It doesn't tend to happen often because... I can't really speak for anybody else, obviously, but I do believe that generally speaking, speaking, if if you've let the story build in your brain over time and you're working on that and, you know, you might not write every day, but you are a writer every day, you can't not have it in your head. Mm-hmm. I tend to believe that if you can sort of relax and you let that process happen, then it will sort of tell itself to some degree. And a lot of the time, there'll be a hell of a lot of stuff to fix up in subsequent edits when you yeah. kind of take and like, dog leg turns and stuff and you're right I need to go back and put in a whole three or four scenes to foreshadow this or to set that up or <laughs> that guy needs to die three chapters sooner or something yeah but that's 
Uh, it's the editing that makes a good book. The, the brain vomit of that first draft, getting it down, that's what's important. So, yeah, I tend to just trust in that and let it roll. But I do tend to make more notes now than I used to. And I think I think that's more not because I really want to plan more, but I think it's because I've got so many projects in mind and so many things that I want to do that I try to stay strict, start one thing, finish it and move on to the next. But because there's all that stuff in my head, I'll write notes for other things I want to do yeah. that I can come. So by the time I get to those projects, I tend to have a lot of notes for them, which I didn't have before. Yeah, because otherwise you might, in the meantime, forget the stuff that you came right. up with. Yeah, Yeah. so I don't ever want to do that. And the notepad app and the voice memo app on the phone and that sort of stuff is brilliant for just grabbing that stuff. And I'll, I've got then, I've got a folder in my uh, in my cloud that's got all my work in it and it's got all these different folders for each novel, for ones that are finished, ones that are in progress or ones that I want to do. And each one of those has got a notes document in it and I transcribe everything into that document. So by the time I get to that particular novel, I'll open that and there'll be several pages of notes of stuff that I've just jotted down in the months, whatever, leading up to finally getting around to that project. And so then the first job will be to go through that notes file and kind of tidy it up and organize it. And often from that point, I can go, right, good, start a timeline and jump straight into the novel. You know, you have a book about uh, writing for fights. Is there like one tip you'd like to share right now about uh, to authors writing a fight? Don't say too much. The biggest oh. problem with fight scenes is that people, especially when people haven't had a lot of experience of fighting, that the, the fight scene in your book or your story should be the fastest, most visceral drag out in your face scene in the book. And often you're reading a really interesting book and you get to a fight scene and suddenly everything slows down yeah. because the author spends too much time, right fist, this, that, and the other, and hit that and did the other and describes techniques and that. We don't need it all. It just slows things down. It just sounds bad. You need to cut that stuff down, short, sharp sentences, get the essence of fighting happening, explore the senses. A lot of the time people just kind of transcribe a movie fight into a book and it's kind of two-dimensional, people taking turns, when, and fighting's just not like that. So you just need to get down, get in there, get gritty, have sound and smell and taste and all that stuff. And just don't say too much. Don't th throw in too much description. People try to be clever and kind of describe all these crazy fight moves and stuff like that. It's much better to little short, very succinct bits of description that feed the idea of that fight. And then people, as in all reading, people's mind will fill in the rest and then it'll be exciting and fast paced. So the first bit of advice is always edit the shit out of a fight scene, cut it right down. <laughs> Way too long. And then what about a tip just on writing in general that you'd like to share? Something you learned along the way writing your books? Um, just you, you don't ignore rules of writing because they don't work for everyone. And when anybody says, if you want to be a writer, you must write every day and stuff like that, that just annoys the hell out of me because some people just can't. So there's loads of good advice out there, but there are no rules. The only rule is that you must, if you want to be a writer, you must write. And if that means you get two hours every Sunday that you write and that's your time, then you protect it and you do two hours. You maybe do a thousand words a week, fine. So you must write. If you, There's no point in wishing you were a writer. A number of people that said to me, oh man, I'd love to write a book if only I had time. And I'm like, yeah, because I only write books because I've got so much free time on my hands. I just had no <laughs> idea what to do with it. So I'm like, shit, I might as well write books. But you, you have to make time for it. So if you want to write, you have to write and you have to make time for that. That's that's the fundamental key. And then just read voraciously and read as widely and as much as you can because that's your fuel. Mm -hmm. Great. Now, any other upcoming projects you'd like to mention? 
Um, well, there's always a bunch of stuff on the go. I've um, I've got a few more short stories coming out uh, late this year and early next year that are coming out. In, I seem to have been hitting a swathe of an- anthologies lately rather than magazines. I've got, um, I think, three or four stories coming out in various anthologies over the next few months. I've got a new standalone urban horror novel that's out and currently looking for a home. That's with my agent. So hopefully that will find itself a home soon and a few other bits underway. And I'm currently at work on another standalone sort of dark urban fantasy horror, not sure quite how you describe it, novel. And so uh, I've done, because of, with a couple of series down, I've decided to just, you know, definitely get a couple of single standalone novels done before I work anymore on existing series or look mm-hmm. to start series. So I've been enjoying telling single self-contained novel stories, as I say, one finished and, oh, and um, I've uh, last year or the year before I did a collaboration with uh, an American author called David Wood. We wrote a book called Dark Right, which is, it's like a long novella, really, or short novel. It's only around 42,000 words. And it's kind of like a classic Hammer House of Horror, B-movie kind of horror story. Um, <laughs> cool. And that, that, yeah, that did pretty well. And that's out now. That's called Dark Right. And that's available sort of everywhere now. And he and I worked quite well together. So we've just, we've just now finished working on a new full length novel, which is kind of like a, it's like a monster adventure novel. It's a bit like, a bit like Jaws, but set on a Finnish lake with a big prehistoric monster rather than a shark. So uh, we've just got that out with some beta readers at the moment to get a bit of feedback on that story. So with any so like an evil Finnish Loch Ness? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you like, a bit like that. And it's, it's <laughs> uh, there's an Australian main character who's an Australian marine biologist, but he's a bit of a sort of an Indiana Jones type character on the side. Uh, and he gets employed by this crazy American billionaire who's obsessed with finding this monster and shenanigans ensue. Nice. I like anything with shenanigans. Yeah. 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 yeah there should be more shenanigans in all walks of life. <laughs> and what's that dark right about? Dark right is a story of, it's a story of a young man who his father moved away to a small Appalachian town. Ooh, I and, like it already. Yeah. It's a bit like that. It's got, we're, we're, we're playing all those sort of tropes. It was kind of the deliberate point of it. His father's died and he's gone up into this Appalachian town to kind of wrap up his dad's affairs and discovers that the town has got this weird and dark secret and he gets kind of wrapped up in it and uh, it just kind of gets creepier and weirder as he goes along and he ends up in all kinds of trouble. That's so it's awesome. A bit, it's a bit, bit hard to say more than that without giving too many things away. But uh, but we were deliberately trying to write something that was in the vein of those those kind of classic horror films. Like, yeah, hopefully not as cheesy as many of those are. But yeah, that kind of tense frightening kind of horror it's a little bit Stephen King a little bit James Herbert kind of um, style mixed with b-movie horror so that, that's what we were aiming for well so. the neat thing the Appalachian region has such it has such rich history and culture just in general but there is right. a rich history and culture of ghost stories and supernatural in that region so that's yeah. the perfect place to and have this is a setting it. yeah yeah and David they have Wood. the best ghost stories I mean just yeah you know. I did some research myself when we started working on that, and there are some fantastic stories out in that region. And David David Wood, who I co-wrote it with, has a lot of knowledge of, of that. He's not he actually uh, he lives in Albuquerque now. He was in Georgia at the time when we wrote that one, but he has a lot of sort of connection and knowledge about that region and stuff like that. So he was kind of a he was a fact-checking go-to source for that <laughs> stuff. So it turned out. So hopefully it's um, it's it's kind of true to the region as well as being a good story. Okay, I'm gonna have to check that one out. Oh, yeah. Cool. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? 
Um, the first place to check is my website, which is uh, warriorscribe.com. There's link any, anywhere on my website that you see a book cover, you can click on it and learn about that book. There's a page called Dark Shorts that links through to a whole bunch of my short stories and stuff like that. Or you can find me on Twitter, just my name, at Alan Baxter, on Twitter, A-L-A-N-B-A-X-T-E-R. And hit me up and say hi and, yeah, look around. What was the name of the of the short story you wrote, the seven-page short story you wrote when you were a child? <laughs> you know what? I wish I could remember what that was called because <laughs> I remember the story and I kind of even remember certain scenes in it. And I remember reading it to the class, but I would have no idea. Maybe it didn't even have a title. I don't know. That's cool. <laughs> it was My Christmas Vacation or something. I think it was yeah, yeah, yeah. My Half Term. Yeah. yeah. It all started when I found a time machine. <laughs> <laughs> And it was so fun talking to British Australian Marks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll find at least one of us everywhere. And every, at least one <laughs> on every continent. Every continent, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, you got North America, you got Australia, so we're going to have to find the, the, the Asian, ones. European, <laughs> and South American. <laughs> wonder if there's one in Antarctica. Oh, uh, there will be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm in no doubt. Very cool. Well, we'll keep in touch. Thanks very much for that. It's good to talk to you. Thank you so well, thank much. You. It was a really good time. And no worries. Take care. Cheers, guys. Hello, everybody. My name is Timo Borenslav. I'm a director of an awesome film about the Nazis from the dark side of the moon called Iron Sky. And you are listening to Entertainment. Well, thanks to Alan for taking the time to chat with us out of Australia. Australia. <laughs> Is that how you're supposed to say it? Uh, check, out the no, show... <laughs> no. check out the show notes for links to as many books. Now, we also want to remind you that you can always keep track of us by subscribing to us on iTunes or Stitcher or by following our Genretainment Facebook page, Marx's Twitter account, which is at Mr. Marks, our website at genretainment.com, or follow all of the shows at scifipostradio.com. You can also find us with other excellent shows on Blog Talk Radio via the League of Geeks network at blogtalkradio.com slash leagueofgeeks. So that's it for today's Genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. Genretainment is a production of Alien Jungle Bug Productions. Until Until next next time. time. Bad monkey.